The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of February 25th, 2019. On this week's show, Damon Young will join us to talk about Zion Williamson's shoe explosion and knee injury and whether he should play another game for Duke before going to the pros. Scott Eden will also be here to discuss his story for ESPN on evidence that referee Tim Donahue fixed NBA games. Finally, Devorah Myers of Deadspin will chat with us about efforts to make breakdancing an Olympic sport. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio, after a two-week absence, is the legendary Mr. Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak. In a few seconds of panic, you were out uh, beating the bushes for breaking uh, to make it an Olympic sport. Oh, it's my next book, Josh. Yeah. Well, first person. I was, I was training. Word. I'm to represent the United States. Word break. Word break. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. It's not that good. No. Anything happened in the last two weeks that, break freak that we should know about? More sense. Yeah. Um, in my life? Yeah. Well, my afterball, you'll, you'll, you'll learn some of the things that I did in my afterball. Afterballs happen yes. to us when we least expect them. Okay. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Wednesday night in Durham, North Carolina, where the cheapest available ticket for the first game of the year between Duke and North Carolina was going for $2,500, and Barack Obama and Spike Lee were in the crowd, Duke freshman Zion Williamson busted through the sole of his Nike PG 2.5 and sprained his right knee 36 seconds into the team's eventual 88-72 to loss. Well, there's a lot of chatter that the presumptive number one pick in the 2019 NBA draft would and should sit out the rest of the season. Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski said on Saturday that such a thing is not in the offing. We would never play a kid who's not ready to play or we would never play a youngster who didn't want to play. And so, you know, it's not about that. It's about he wants to play. You know, he... He loves being a Duke. He, he doesn't like being injured. It's not an injury that it's an injury that you can get over in a shorter period of time. And uh, there's just a protocol that we have to go through to make sure that he's completely ready. And we're, we're not going to rush anything. So that's why we say day to day, because it's literally day to day. Joining us now to discuss is Damon Young. He's the founder of the website Very Smart Brothers editor at The Root, and the author of the forthcoming book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. It's on sale at the end of March, but don't wait. Buy it right now. Uh, Welcome to the show, Damon. Uh, Thanks for having me. 
So I'm sure that that Coach K clip gave you comfort. There is a protocol. They would never put a kid out there when he was uh, at any kind of risk. And so uh, I'm assuming that you believe that, that Zion is in, in good hands. Um, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know there's a, uh, there's a long and storied history of these, you know, multi billion dollar mechanisms, um, being working in the best interest of their, un, of their unpaid workers. So, you know, with that in mind, I do believe that, um, the entire NCAA has Zion's best, um, interests in mind. It was really interesting to hear guys like Donovan Mitchell and DeMarcus Cousins, Cousins in particular, say, uh, knowing what I know now, college is bullshit. And it seems like the Zion situation, um, more than any other one, has really um, demonstrated what a raw deal, uh, a guy who's as marketable and talented as, as Zion is. And I think it's not just the, the the raw deal part, but it's the willful misdirection on the part of people like Shashevsky. You know, he wants to play. Hey, Zion Williamson wants to play. We would never put a kid out there that doesn't want to play. The reality is that Shashevsky should be saying, Zion Williamson wants to play. I'm going to tell him he shouldn't play. And I'm going to say the same thing to Cam Reddish and to R.J. Barrett because it is not in their interest. What about interests. Trey Jones? He can play? Sure. No, <laughs> Trey Jones can't play either. None of them should play. The, anyone in their position. That guy, Jack White, he can play. <laughs> Jack White can play as much as he wants. Um, but anyone in his position, the, the ethical thing for people like Krzyzewski to say is you shouldn't play. So that game. You know, more 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 than any other game that I could that I could remember, um, just really articulates and illustrates just the just all of the cognitive dissonance um, that that needs to occur, you know, in order for the NCAA to function. With that context, and also realizing that people like Coach K, you know, he he's going to do what's in his best interest. I do feel like Zion should play. And I feel like almost like Jason Whitlock when I when I'm when I'm saying this, but never a good place to be. Yeah, I know it's. Not, I I feel like I feel like I after I I actually feel like I need to go take a shower like right now. If he is healthy and if he wants to play, then I think that he should. So I I think because of the freakishness of that injury and 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 you know he almost had a split and it's and it was a knee thing. We know that knee things, especially with explosive athletes aren't things to be messed with, you know, I, I think that just scared everyone. I mean, I, I think there's a point in a basketball player's development where it now becomes counterproductive. I mean, look, of course Zion Williamson should have played through high school. He needs to get better. Of course, barring the NBA allowing him to play, he is going to consider going to college because it is the main platform to increase his marketability create a name for himself, turn him into a superstar before he even gets drafted. But there is a point where it is completely antithetical to his interests long-term to play college basketball. Zion Williamson doesn't need to play another second in for Duke to be the number one pick, to get a eight-figure, to get an eight-figure shoe deal, and to be, you know, he's already is a, 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 a superstar. But... 
I, I'm going to make your head explode, Stefan, because I agree with Damon. I think that it's easy for us to say that the NCAA is um, horrible and corrupt and taking advantage of him. And it's easy to say all that because it's true. But asking him to kind of martyr himself um, on both on principle and because of his financial interest doesn't take into account the fact that he chose to go to Duke. Um, he seems to be having, by all accounts, a great time there. Mm-hmm. Um, They're not mutually exclusive, of course. He can still have a great time at Duke and not play. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he chose not to play, he would not only deprive himself of playing, which he um, seems to enjoy and want to do and potentially win an NCAA title, which he seems to want to do and play with his teammates for this limited window they have together, which he seems to want to do. But he would also make himself um, a central figure in a culture war, right, Damon? Like he would be um, making himself, if, if we're thinking about marketing, and his potential earnings value, he's put in this, he's in this horrible position, not of his own making, but he would be, if he sat out, there would be a lot of people who, um, and it's not like you need to like please everyone, but he would be making himself a villain and, and an enemy of a lot of uh, people who would otherwise be disposed to like him. I don't know if, if that's a consideration. It, it's not, it's not for, I mean, it, it could be for him. You know, and he's what, 18, 19 years old and 18. You know, at 18, he's 18 years old. And yeah, that that could very well be a consideration for him, you know, and I would hope, you know, and this is probably me just being too optimistic, but I would hope that people around him who know better would would try to remove that, right. you know, just all, all of that static because that's that's this useless noise. But my my whole thing is not necessarily I don't even care about the responsibility up, you know, whether, you know, he, he chose to play for Duke, he, he's healthy, he's responsible to play for them, responsible for his teammates. I mean, all right, whatever. I just, I look at him as someone who just really has fun playing basketball. And, and very obviously has goals that he wants to accomplish while he's there at Duke. And he's, I mean, he could have torn the ACLs on both of his knees. He's still going to be the number one pick. Like, and, and you know, and I think it's important here to, you know, to, to make those distinctions between um, football and basketball, especially playing on that level, because the, the chances of you having like this career threatening injury while playing basketball are much, 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 much slimmer than they are in football. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you have these football players who chose who choose not to play in these bowl games. And I get it. I get it, because one hit could not just end your career, could could end your life. <laughs> Really, in a you know, in a in a football game, basketball, there's not, there's risk, obviously, but there's not as much risk, and and again, I I just think that would would a kid like him who, if he wants to play, um, yeah, I just I, I don't know, and it and again, feeling this way and saying this out loud goes counter to everything that I believe about the NCAA, about college athletes, about just the hypocrisy that is necessary in order for this whole economy to function. I am aware of all of that. You guys realize, you guys realize that one quarter inch difference in 
his movement when his shoe exploded could have led to his ACL being blown out. I mean, the the it is obviously, Damon, you're right. It is way harder to have a catastrophic injury playing basketball than playing football. But he was really fucking close to having a catastrophic injury. Yeah. Um, but you're you're operating in the realm of of um, I'm not going to say the theoretical, but like in a perfect world, none of these guys would be playing. But in the reality that mm-hmm. we inhabit today, you have to acknowledge that it's very difficult for you or for anybody else to sit here and tell this guy that he shouldn't play anymore, that he couldn't play anymore, or that it's, it's irrational for him to play anymore because it's not. No, I understand that it's not. That's why I think that there probably should be some adults in the room telling him that this isn't worth it for six weeks of basketball. That you're gonna yeah. get, you're gonna get hundreds of, you're gonna, you're worth, you're gonna be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, dude. Why He's, risk it so that Duke yeah. can hoist another banner and Shashevsky can get another ring? Well, here's what my stipulations would be um, if I were him to go back and play. Because Duke is a private school. We do not know the terms of their deal with Nike. Mm-hmm. We Presumably, Shashevsky makes millions of dollars per year, probably, mm-hmm. as part of their shoe deal. We also don't know what the incentive clauses are in his contracts. We know from public schools that um, you know if a team makes the Sweet 16 or wins a championship, the coach will get a million dollars. So Shashevsky is not an honest broker here. Like he has an incentive for Zion to come back, a financial one. If I were him, I would demand independent evaluations paid for, not by him, um, to get get back on the court. Because I wouldn't trust the you know team. I wouldn't even trust the team doctor. I wouldn't trust the coach. I wouldn't trust anybody involved in that university. Like if he's making this decision, it has to be for him, um, and he has to have peace of mind that he's getting sound advice on what his health is. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, you know, and again, it's it's you you just can't divorce the competing interests here. I mean, the, that matters, and he should not be at Duke. Like that, and, and, I, and well, for many reasons. <laughs> yeah, for many reasons, but for he should be in the NBA right now. He should be in the NBA right now. RJ Bear should be in the NBA. Cam Ritter should be in the NBA right now. You know, so they shouldn't even be there. And that's just in, in you know this entire conversation, you know, exists you know with that elephant being there. It's like they this shouldn't even be a conversation because these you know the sort of guys who can who can obviously play in the NBA right now should be able to play in the NBA right now. Um, but since he's there, um, and since this is a kid who very obviously loves to play basketball and, you know, and yes, uh, Kosesky has his, obviously has his agenda. He's going to get, you know, prop assume presumably millions of dollars, you know, if, you know, however far, you know, Duke advances, uh, he may get another banner, which will allow him to just get more Zion's. Um, you know, in the next, in the upcoming classes and more RJ Barrett's and just, you know, just continue just that cycle of, of, of cash. But, um, but even with that existing, you know, I, I think that we have to recognize that even though Zion is an 18 year old kid, he does have agency. I don't want to deny his agency, but he is 18. And if he, his, he may look back in 10 years and think that, 
my goal of creating a better highlight than leaping 12 feet in the air and blocking a shot <laughs> against Virginia, um, that may diminish in his you know, in, 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 in the catalog of his accomplishments as he goes forward. I think what I also am so upset about this last week is how it has unleashed just the bad takes again on what should happen in college sports. I was reading a column by Jerry Brewer in the Washington Post over the weekend. Brewer um, comes up with this idea. He says, first and foremost, I'm not in favor of simply paying college athletes because there should be some distinction between amateurs and professionals. I'm still not sure why people still believe this. His great idea is to let college athletes have right of first refusal options to the sneaker companies for a fee that will be held in trust until they finish or forfeit their college eligibility then you would put limits on how much they could get based on their pro potential, which would be determined by a governing board. Like <laughs> this is where people go in their efforts to prop up the That is, that the is impressively tortured. It is incredibly tortured. It's, but it's just amazing that this is where the mind goes to try to – to, to well, support look, the college uh, enterprise. I think that the u- the utility of this episode is that it brings the um, uh, the contradictions into full view in a way that's undeniable. And you know, the one and done rule is over. Basically, it's going to be it's going to be done. I think for the twenty twenty two draft, the the NBA doesn't want it anymore. It's going to be gone, and that will solve the the Zion problem. I think the the thing that's more in question is whether college athletes will be able to benefit from uh, you know selling their likenesses while they're in school. Because in that case, I mean, Zion he had one point one million Instagram followers in January two thousand eighteen. He now has two point two million. So going to Duke has improved his uh, his reach on social media, but he could sell ads on his Instagram for, you know, probably six figures at this point, um, in which case, if he was able to do that, then, then we would have less of an issue here. But, um, you know, no matter what, I just feel like we need to divorce Zion's decision. If he wants to play in the NCAA tournament, mm-hmm. good for him. Um, we need to divorce that from the idea that, um, you know, anything that's going on here is okay. Like those, those feel like separate conversations to me. It, they, they are. And, and it, it, it makes me a little nauseous to be on the same side as, as um, Josh. Yeah, yeah, as Josh and just some of our, of our, of our favorite hot takers. And, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, this sort of, this sort of conversation, um, um, and, and, and yeah, you know, both things can exist at the same time. The NCAA could, you know, just be this, this thoroughly fucked up entity and Zion could still have, you know, possessed the agency where he decides that playing is in his best interest. It, it just really just articulates just, just how fucked up everything is right here just it's just a jumble of fuck shit and you know the nba just and in the NCAA and the NCAA and the nba just saying you know what we don't need this to happen anymore these guys who very obviously don't need to be here need to be in the nba would solve some of it not all of it because NCAA is still going to be a multi-billion dollar industry but 
it would solve some of these. It would alleviate some of these feelings, at least for me. I, I thought that I knew how I felt and my feelings were more aligned um, with this. I also said, but actually once I thought about it over the next, over the next day, it, it came out that I'm, um, yeah, that what I just said kind of surprised me. I think, I think some of my feelings are colored by the fact that I've been a New York Knicks fan my whole life and I want to see him play for the Knicks. <laughs> Get it all on the table. And That's hey, good. Duke too. There's that part also. That's the other thing, Josh. I can't believe you're rooting for him to help Duke win a national championship. Let's, let's just move on. Uh, Damon Young is a Zion Williamson fan. He's the founder of Very Smart Brothers, editor at The Root, and the author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Damon, thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Before we get to our conversation about Tim Donahue, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will be taking a trip to the Orchids of Asia Massage Parlor in Jupiter, Florida, a conceptual visit um, to assess the reports about Patriots owner Robert Kraft. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In 2008, NBA referee Tim Donahue was sentenced to 15 months in prison for wire fraud and transmitting wagering information through interstate commerce. Donahue admitted to passing confidential information that he learned as a ref to a bookie, his friend James Batista, in exchange for between $2,000 and $5,000 per game. The FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, and an independent investigation launched at the request of the NBA all concluded that Donahue did not fix games, or as the NBA put it in a recent statement, that he did not make a particular ruling during a game in order to increase the likelihood that his gambling pick would be correct. But in a recent piece for ESPN, the product of a two-year investigation, Scott Eden calls that conclusion into question. Joining us now is Scott Eden. Thank you for being here, Scott. Great to be here. Uh, Let's start with the why and the how. So it's been a decade. It was a little bit less than a decade when you started working on this since Donahue uh, was sentenced to those 15 months in prison. Why did you and ESPN decide to reinvestigate this? And once you had decided to embark on that, how did you uh, go about doing this pretty massive reporting job? The genesis was um, in 2017, which was kind of the ten, which was the 10-year anniversary of when the scheme kind of blew up and then broke into the public domain, and and the investigation sort of uh, was was launched that very um, was was conducted that same year. Um, so yeah, 10-year anniversary, and it was kind of in the vein of you know um, you know looking back at major. Um, sporting sort of uh, events, scandals, news stories of the past. You know, there were always a lot of kind of mysteries that dogged the Donaghy, you know, um, the whole Donaghy story. We felt that it really hadn't been told fully. And and that was sort of the, the major impetus. And then, of course, um, along the way, you know, there, the, the Supreme Court had its kind of landmark ruling regarding sports gambling. And so we felt like more important than ever 
to dig into this story with the coming of really what's going to be a legalized, you know, sort of um, betting market here in the United States. And you talked to more than 100 people. You reviewed um, the games that he refereed. What what should people know about um, who you talked to and how you tried to get at this question of whether he fixed games or not? Right. I mean, there were sort of three avenues to pursue. You know, there was the gambling world. Um, there's the world of the NBA and then also the investigation. You know, the, F- the, F- the federal prosecutors and the FBI conducting that investigation. So I had to kind of go down each of those um, tributaries and, and talk to as many people around, around that I could who would, who would talk to me. Um, and then, you know, there's the, there was a data element and a human source element. You know, how do you go about proving someone fixed games as short of the person who did the fixing, you know, admitting it, you know, confessing to it publicly? You know, there's going to be a, we thought there would always be a data element where you might be able to find patterns in the data. And then the second, you know, that maybe there's someone out there who has spoken to Donahue about what he did and may have some insights. Well, the official storyline was a lot of semantics, wasn't it? I mean, it was a lot of sort of dodging the, right. the, 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 what was obvious, which was that he had the ability to do this and it, right. it, it beggars belief that he didn't do it. And tell us then what you found along these two lines. Why don't we start with the human element, the people that you talked to who effectively corroborated that Donahue was blowing his whistle to try to make sure uh, spreads were covered. Right. I mean, essentially there's four, four sources there. Um, in addition, just the gamblers who kind of sussed it out, like from very early on, like before even Batista, Jim Batista, who is a... Um, you know, one of the he, essentially he's like an underground bet broker for very large betting syndicates. He was part of a a betting syndicate that learned about Donahue's sort of outrageous win rate on on his own games. You know, very early, and it was their supposition that he was fixing. And Donahue and was they, winning and, what? How many? What percentage of games that he was betting? I, I would say at that point, you know, I think fifty five, sixty, as much as seventy percent early on, and then it kind of went higher after the face to face deal. Um, that's what my reporting kind of bears out from multiple sources who were involved in that syndicate that kind of deduced or sussed out that something was almost assuredly happening as far back as 2003. We spoke to four um, human sources, yeah, who, um, you know, say that he, you know, confessed or admitted to them. And one of them was Tommy Martino. So he was a good friend from high school who was, uh, you know, the kind of a part of the three-man conspiracy that was eventually um, prosecuted. Um, and then, uh, you know, another friend of, of Donahue's from, from Florida who he, had, he confided in, and then a professional gambler who confronted him after the fact, and a, a woman, who, the woman who published his, uh, Donahue's memoir. You know, at, this is from a, actually a deposition where she um, relates a story in which she asked Donahue to take a, a lie detector test that specifically asked the question, you know, did you fix the games? And he refused to take that lie detector test, and he said because he would fail it. Do you think that it's a pretty big indictment of the NBA that gamblers figured out what was going on here years before the league did? Or should we not expect that at that point in its history, the NBA would have had reason to suspect or should have been monitoring patterns in these games as closely as you would have needed to to figure out that something was fishy? I mean, I think they should have been back then. I mean, the, the global betting markets in 2003 and four were huge. Um, and, you know, only increased in size until 2007. I mean, billions of dollars wagered, especially, you know, not just, I mean, we're not talking Las Vegas here. We're talking offshore 
gray market, black market, um, Far East. online, internet-based sports books that are often sort of connected to black market street bookies in the U.S. and all over the world. And there's, there's something called the Asian markets, and these are gray market, black market, um, internet-based um, sports books that are based in places like Kuala Lumpur or Manila. And they, they take trillions of dollars in bets, you know, globally on all sports, but on the NBA too. And this, this existed back then. I mean, it was no secret. Trillions? That sounds like a lot. <laughs> trillions? Uh, trillions. <laughs> per year. Trillions? All right. I'm just going to say trillions a couple more times. Um, I have notes, Stefan, on all of the suspicious um, patterns they found in these games. I can run through a few of them um, that you noted, Scott. Donahue calling two fouls 50 seconds apart against Andre Iguodala, the Sixers' best player with the score margin right on the spread. Um, and a Sonics-Mavericks game calling 11 straight fouls against Seattle when the um, spread was in question. Donahue calling 14 fouls against Charlotte in a game uh, where the Timberwolves, their opponent, ended up covering. Um, how many different games did you guys look at? And, you know, the stuff that you're pointing out here seems pretty egregious. Would you argue, I mean, you haven't <laughs> looked at every NBA game to find potential suspicious patterns in games that Donahue wasn't refing, but would you argue that the stuff that I read and then the other examples that you have in here is stuff that you wouldn't find in a, a typical NBA game and is just like not possible due to chance? I think over time, we looked at, for instance, all of 2006, 2007. Uh, all of those, we, call, we logged all of the calls by all three refs in all of Donaghy's games for that season. Then we narrowed it down, though, to 40 games in between the face-to-face -face deal that Batista made with Donaghy and the end of that when, that when it blew up in late March. So there's 40 games there, and we, we did that just based on you know, multiple human sources telling us that was the window of the scheme when it really started. You know, that's what you know, it ratcheted up. Bet sizes increased. You know, there's a face-to-face -face deal in place. Donahue is actually being paid by someone to, for winning, quote-unquote, picks. And that was the, so that's the window that we really focused on statistically. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that's going to come up um, as a red, you know, he was calling technically correct foul calls. Um, so they wouldn't raise red flags if you just individually watched the games. Um, every ref is going to have an imbalance of calls. No ref is going to call 50-50 um, each game, you know, on, on each side. But over time, it will, that will, the, the, you know, the binomial distribution will, if the, if the ref is unbiased, will, um, it will spread out, and, and it will be 50-50 or close to it, right? It will be coin flips. That was our supposition. So we ran two distinct statistical analyses that, you know, showed that something was up. I mean, he was favoring sides. One thing that was never really examined here is what other refs thought. Everyone sort of went omerta a little bit and said that right. they were unaware of what Donahue was doing. Even the refs that refereed games with him sort of pleaded the fifth about whether they knew anything. But you did talk to one former NBA ref who admits now that he had his suspicions. That's right. Ed T. Rush, who was, 
you know, he was a veteran referee himself, then became like a um, supervisor or an executive level, um, uh, uh, an executive in the NBA with, with uh, you know, oversight of the entire referee program at one time. And yeah, he was called to analyze games, you know, for the, um, for the Pedowitz investigation, which was the, you know, the post-scandal um, probe that the NBA commissioned. And yeah, and you know, he, he was one of the main sources who sort of, for, for us, who kind of, in, in, you know, in retrospect, looking back, um, kind of putting it together for us what Donahue was up to, making calls outside of the flow of the game that are what, what uh, Ed T. Rush was his name, the supervisory ref called, you know, um, uh, literal interpretations. Donahue responded to your story on Twitter, and one of the things he said was, never told anyone I fixed a game. Why do you think Donahue has clung to this story? Does he face any legal peril if he were to come out and say, of course I blew the whistle to try to make sure that I was getting under the spread? I don't know if there's any legal peril. I mean, not criminally, because I believe statute of limitations is up on right. that. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, litigation, maybe? There might be some civil, but that's actually something I, we, I wanted to check on <laughs> with lawyers, but I actually never got to it. Like, what is the civil, you know? It just seems like he's clinging on to it for psychological for reasons. Psych what else could or, it be? Yes, it could be psychological, emotional reasons. You know, and a reader actually brought this up, you know, after the story was published, and I had never quite thought about it. But it maybe in his mind, like, um, you know, it's just the spread I'm manipulating. The, the outcome of the game, like Team X would have beat Team Y anyway. So maybe that's what he thinks is a fix. I don't know. Well, in a way, it feels to me like that's almost what the NBA wants to believe, too, mm. because mm -hmm. historically, when you think of fixing games, you're thinking about the outcome changing. Right. And you can take a sort of very narrow argument like Donahue, I think, has done or others have done or the NBA wants to believe and say that, well, it was just, a, you know, a few points here or there. But that's what fixing is. It's not who wins and who loses. Well, I don't know, It's Stephen. manipulating the course of the game to ensure an outcome. And in doing that, in a very close game, your whistle is probably potentially changing the outcome. I don't know if I agree with, with that. Really? That's the popular conception. Because point shaving is a, is a pretty well-known concept. And it's why I think historically when players have done it, when refs have done it, this is how they rationalize it, right? It seems like the same way that Donahue rationalizes it, that it's not affecting the outcome of the game. And he said explicitly to, to folks um, you know, that you quote in the story, Scott, that he said, I can't do anything about blowouts. Um, you know, he acknowledged his own limitations, that there are only, there's a certain kind of tranche of games that he could have an effect on. Right, and in, in, in the games you looked at, Scott, it was 30 out of 40, which is a, a lot of games. <laughs> it's a lot of games, but it is ultimately just a rationalization because any alteration in honest brokering of a sporting event can lead to a change in the outcome. You can say, well, it's just on the margins, but you don't know that because it changes the flow of the game. And that's what the NBA is so worried about. If it were just, well, it was just a couple points here and there, the NBA maybe could admit that and say we were duped by a, an unethical referee. But what the NBA is concerned about is that, A, outcomes are, are different, which affects the ultimate integrity of the league, and B, that the NBA 
is so easily perverted into an organ of a criminal enterprise. It really perverted into an organ. Even if team, if, if, if the manipulation doesn't result in Team X defeating Team Y when they wouldn't have otherwise, I, how can you control for it? I mean, if some, if a ref or a player is engaging in this activity, I mean, you, you, you do not, you, you, will you be okay with that happening? Of course not. All right, let's talk about the NBA's response to your piece, Scott. Some of it is just playing word games, in my view, around what exactly fixing games means, and I think we can skip that. Um, But there were a couple of individual specific points that they made that I'm curious about your response to. One of them was that you um, quoted a professional gambler as saying that Donahue told him he liked to call an illegal defense call right away in the first minute, and they say he only called illegal defense three times during the first minute of a game of a four-year period. They also say, um, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence from games that there's, you know, the game with Dallas at Seattle, December 2006, that um, there was, uh, you know, a foul at the end that you mentioned that allowed, uh, you know, a team to cover a spread, but it was actually the team fouling intentionally. So I don't know if there's any specific, any of those specifics that you want to comment on or just the general tenor of the NBA response. Yeah, I mean, some of that we're going to relook at, but we did look at um, the claim from the professional gambler who relayed to us the portions of the conversation he had with our, the context and the, the, his memories of the conversation he had with Donnie in which he confessed. And there were um, early game illegal defense calls, there were more than three. The one-minute definition is what the NBA sort of stuck to. Right. Um, but we, 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 did, we, we did check that, and, so, and it checked out. Right. That was a case of some guy talking extemporaneously, like he called, he made an illegal defense call early on the first minute, and then the NBA sticking to the one minute. The if literal it was a minute and minute one thing. second, they would not have counted it. Yeah, and as far as the, the, there was this section in there where we kind of went through in a kind of montage of, you know, games that Donahue refed, and they went through this win streak, you know, right after he had done his deal with Batista, and we were trying to capture, you know, yet some of these streaks of calls that Donahue made, and the, it cap, and, and also capture the idea that, you know, those bets covered, you know, and that was the purpose sort of of that section, is to give the reader a sense of what was happening, based on our extensive reporting. Uh, this, and logging of the calls. The really, really interesting thing um, that hadn't occurred to me before reading the piece, Scott, and that we've d- discussed a little bit in this conversation, is this idea that Donahue in making these foul calls, which is essentially how uh, he you know, allegedly manipulated these games, he wasn't doing anything egregious that the individual calls, if you looked at them, in isolation were by the book and by the rules. And that kind of squares with what we see as viewers and fans. Um, you can say the same thing about football with just like the the classic, they could call holding on, on every play, which A, kind of must be terrifying for the NBA because of how easy it is for a ref to manipulate a game without being detected. If you're maybe a little bit more savvy and sophisticated than Donahue was, it seems like it would be really hard for even a retrospective analysis to capture anything. But B, it's a little bit disorienting for fans, right? Um, Just to know that 
a game could be fixed and it could – that it doesn't look like you think it would look as a fix. It just looks like a totally normal NBA game. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to embrace the fact that that sort of uncertainty is in the nature of sports <laughs> and sports gambling. I mean, as long as there have been sports, people have gambled on them, and as long as people have gambled on them, they've tried to fix There have been instances of people trying to fix them. I think people well, We like to, to think of the uncertainty as like, oh, the shot goes in or the shot doesn't go in. We don't like to think of the uncertainty as – like, we, we hate that kind of uncertainty even when it's not crooked. Like, oh, I can't, I can't believe the ref fucked us by making that call or not making that call. Like, that's not the fun kind of uncertainty. That's right, but it's there. <laughs> and I think now more than ever, with the betting markets on the verge of exploding because of legalization, which I'm not against, by the way, I think it's just people need to understand that that's in the DNA of sports, period, and it always has been. So what do you think the NBA and other leagues are going to need to do in this age of legal sports gambling in order to assure the public that uh, as much as they can, that the games are not well, uh, corrupt? They did make changes, right, Scott, after yeah. the yeah. Donahue scandal came to light. They did. Um, and the, you know, they've got an integrity sort of unit, just like all major sports leagues do around the world. But I mean, the sports leagues are participants in the gambling market. I mean, even, even the NBA says it wants a cut of the gambling profit. So they, 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 can't, they can't regulate themselves, in other words, because they're market participants. So I, I would think, given how big it's going to be, and it is the size of a financial market, the betting markets, um, there needs to be some sort of outside body, like a securities and exchange commission that would regulate or, or, or police the markets and look out for this stuff. I mean, there's no way to eradicate it, just like there's no way to eradicate fraudulent stock trading. Um, you can only police it and try to nip it in the bud. So that's, I think, the answer. Uh, we will link to uh, Scott's story on our show page if you want to uh, get uh, the down and dirty yourself. It's a long read, but it's worth it. Uh, and it's uh, very impressive and thorough job of uh, reporting. Scott Eden, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Almost 30 years ago, the International Council of Amateur Dancers changed its name to the International Dance Sport Federation. This was a naked attempt to increase the chances of the group's primary discipline, ballroom dancing, getting into the Olympics. The International Olympic Committee did, in fact, recognize the federation a few years later, and now dancing is on the brink of making it into the games. But would you believe it's not ballroom dancing Instead, breaking, better known by a term that is anathema to its participants, break dancing, last week was proposed by the organizers of the 2024 Games in Paris as one of four new sports, along with skateboarding, sport climbing, and surfing. They've still got a little bit of a ways to go. The IOC will make an ultimate decision on whether to admit breaking and those other sports next year. Devorah Myers of Deadspin joins us now. 
Hey, thanks for having me. You wrote an excellent long piece about breaking last fall after it debuted at the IOC's Youth Olympics in Argentina. The first gold medalists were B-Boy Bumblebee of Russia and B-Girl Ram of Japan. This is a long way from breakdancing's roots in the Bronx in the late 1970s. First, what does breakdancing traditionally look like and how would breaking in the Olympics be different? There's so many different levels of enjoying breaking, but, you know, I think the essence of it is the jam and the house party where um, back when I was in grad school and not going to grad school classes, um, I would go to jams and it would just it could be any it could be in a club. It can be at a community center. um, And so you would have, let's say, the battles. You would often see guys who never even bothered watching a single round of of the battle and would just be dancing the whole time. It was like a party and there were some battles happening in the background. And I don't think that that would be the case um, with breaking at the Olympic Games where the, you know, people will be sitting and watching as opposed to like off on the side doing their own thing and then occasionally peeping in to look at the battle. So I do think that will be very different. But you already have similar um, sort of setups. For instance, like Red Bull BC1, you're not like people aren't like dancing off to the side. That's a sponsored team by Red Bull, right? It's a sponsored series of jams. Um, The first BC1 um, world final was in 2004, I believe. And so Red Bull sponsors, you know, like they'll have qualifiers, different continental qualifiers. And then it'll be like a one-on-one Top 16, I believe, um, or I don't think it's top 24. I believe it's top 16. And so, you know, one-on-one battles. And then, you know, and then till everyone's eliminated till the final, and then there'll be a showdown between the two B-boys in the final. So that's a much more of a staged event and a little further away from breaking his roots. So this is kind of a classic phenomenon in, uh, you know, sports that maybe some people don't who who practice them don't consider to be sports like we've been through this with skateboarding and snowboarding and other extreme sports to some degree right just this notion that medals and competition are antithetical to the spirit of the event as it's been practiced do you feel like that is kind of even more of an issue and breaking than some of those other sports. Like to me, intuitively, it seems like it would be, but I'm not even sure I can articulate why. Well, I think, you know, breaking from its very early days, like you said, in the South Bronx um, is by nature competitive. So battles have always been a mainstay. So on the one hand, competitions are really not anathema to the idea of breaking. And I just want to add that if you want to read a really short, but really excellent history of breaking, everyone should check out, Joe Schloss's book. It's called Foundation. Anyway, just go back. Uh, he really gets into the history and what it looked like back in the day. So on the one hand, competition, I don't think is anathema. But on the other hand, like how it's evaluated and like the sort of demands of an Olympic style competition with like rule books and very tight regulations. Um, you know, someone in this, I think it was Steve Graham in my story that said like at its best, like breaking is like this um, almost like barely controlled chaos. And that's what makes it so exciting to go. It's like there is a setup, there is a stage, there is a battle, but it's, you know, there's just this energy and like the whole, like one of the things that constantly happens at at, at battles, like less formal stage ones is that 
you know, people will be sitting around watching or standing around watching and the, they keep the spectators kind of keep pushing in and in on the action. Every like few rounds, they have to be like, everyone needs to move back. We need space. But that's kind of the setup of it. And so the sort of the IOC rigid structure seems like it wouldn't, it doesn't necessarily fit and coming up with rules that, you know, um, would quantify everything, which it does not appear that they have done. They've come up with a system that's better suited to breaking at least. Um, that also seems like to be against the spirit of breaking of just like points and rules. But competition in and of itself is very much part right, of right. Right. history. Yeah. So culturally, it's sort of like basketball in Rucker Park or at West 4th Street in, in, in Greenwich Village versus the NBA. And so while there there is a you know historically I mean it's rooted in in competition and as you pointed out in your piece Devora there were people in the sport um, people in breakdancing in the eighties who envisioned it as an Olympic mm-hmm. sport one day um, artistically though I guess is where. I wonder how this will play out because in order to have sort of a more formal like gymnastics type judging, how would they sort of square? Like, are they going to require particular moves? Are they going to grade particular moves or sequences, you know, on some sort of scale? Do you have a sense of how this sort of um, the sort of much more free form discipline will get regulated, judged, and then, you know, meddled at, at an Olympics? I, I don't get the sense, having spoken to two of the people involved with the the Trivium judging system, that they are going to a points-based system. They're kind of going around for round format. So it's kind of like deciding the winner of each round, right? And then, um, and you know, like, so it's not like you do an air flare and therefore that's like 10 points. It'd be really hard to do because like a thing with gymnastics um, is that the number, there's like set limits you can do in... Uh, women's routine, for instance, it's like eight skills count towards your start value, right? There's no set number of moves you can say, like, you can only do 12, or you can only do this, like, there isn't anything like that. I don't, and I think it would be a very bad idea to impose that on breaking. And I don't think that's the plan. So they're kind of doing these sort of battles in this head to head format, with this sort, they use these sliders, sort of like a DJ would to sort of move like on different criteria, like who's winning here and there. Um, and I believe it was tested out at the Youth Olympic Games. I'm sure it will be developed further as they try to move closer to, you know, Olympic inclusion. It'll be voted, I think, for 2020. That's when they'll decide. But yeah, you can't, you can't like, quant- I think in the piece I said, like, what you do with like a perfectly well-timed cough, like alienested in, in, uh, in a jam. I mean, it's, it got the whole crowd went nuts and it's exciting and it's, and it shows a creativity, but how do you quantify that? <laughs> I think that, um, just imagining how this would play out, it seems like the mano a mano format would be incredibly um, conducive to broadcast. Yeah. Um, and I think broadening that out, the question here is who would be getting more out of this arrangement? Like, it seems like this would be great for the Olympics um, in terms of diversifying audience, bringing in younger um, viewers, um, breaking has international appeal. And so it checks all of those boxes. But as far as breaking itself, and I think you hear some practitioners saying this, you know, what would we get out of this? What would our culture get out of this? I think, you know, I think those are really fair questions. And I imagine, you know, I think a 
like just, you know, anecdotally, I've had conversations with people over the years because um, I was a very, very terrible B-girl for about six to eight years, depending. <laughs> I don't know how to like, there were like, you know, times I took time off. So I, don't yeah, I was wondering, to... what are the two years where you may or may not have been a bit terrible b I don't know. It's just more like <laughs> when I wouldn't go to practice or I had to, you know, because practices are at times that weren't necessarily convenient as I got as I got older and had more professional obligations yeah. um, and was walking, like wasn't walking a dog or teaching Hebrew school. Like my, my attendance of practice would slide um, and also had some injuries that were some were just because I'm klutzy. You know, you talk to some people who have been around for a really long time and maybe went through the boom, so to speak in the eighties where there were, you know, all the, there was these movies and it was in flash dance. It was well. Flashdance is what like helped it explode globally, and and so in that respect, it was a very good thing. But you know, there were like you know all the breaking movies, and they were performing on like on these TV shows, and then that all sort of dies down and quiets down. And you know, people, I think from you know just things I've heard, were left wondering like, what did we get out of this? How did this help us? So I, you know, were we in control of the process? And I think that was you know some of the concern you know, about breaking at the Olympics. Like who is going stands to benefit? Obviously the IOC stands to benefit because breaking checks a lot of their boxes. It's young. Like you said, it will play very well on broadcast TV. You know, like, you know, the Olympics, most people experience them through television, not going there live. And, and the question is who in the community will benefit. And I think that remains to be seen how that will play out. And you know, I don't know I, this feels it. like a familiar story to me though. I mean, those concerns absolutely existed with snowboarding and other extreme sports. And I don't think anyone or very few people in that community who have benefited, you know, financially, the spread of the sport, attention that it gets, sponsorships. I mean, people that didn't have careers snowboarding 25 years ago, 20 years ago, are full-fledged professionals now. Whether that would also happen with breaking, I don't know, but it's already a sport that has sponsorships. You mentioned Red Bull, and there was a big uh, breaking competition in Paris this weekend. So it's part of the natural phase of any competitive athletic endeavor to sort of ratchet up till it's professionalized in some way. But I guess there is this cultural tension here that existed certainly in snowboarding and other sports, but feels really prominent in, in, in breaking. Yeah. I, I mean, also it's just, this is uncharted territory. So we don't, people don't actually know who, how it's going to play out, who is going to benefit from it just yet. So, and I think people are expressing very valid concerns um, and again, it's just some of this is like, you know, we're, it's five or six years out. So some of this is just going to, we'll see how it plays out. What partnerships are made. Hughes involved in the decision-making process. You know, I can say, you know, I think I noted in the, in the beginning of the article that when the, when it was announced that breaking would be at the Youth Olympic Games, um, in 2018, it was clear that the um, World Dance Sport Federation had not done outreach to a lot of key players because, you know, you had crazy legs in that video in the in the article basically saying, like, who's in charge of it? Charge of this. I haven't been contacted. Like who's crazy legs? Crazy legs. He's one of the famous rock steady B-boys. He was, um, I believe, I believe he was Jennifer Beals. Like he did the, the breaking moves for Jennifer Beals and Flashdance. And and so he's like a very famous B-boy. 
And so he was, he was one of the people at the Youth Olympic Games. So clearly they had then subsequently done outreach and spoke to people like, you know, considered leaders in the community and someone like B-Boy Storm is, is a very respected figure. So I guess a lot of this will depend on who's involved with this going forward, who's calling the shots and who, you know, who is deciding what's in breaking's best interest and how to best present something that a lot of people I think are pretty unfamiliar with on a very large global stage for the first time. And it's particularly fraught, Stefan, in a different way than something like snowboarding because this is, um, you know, a culture uh, that comes out of black and Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. communities and it seems fraught um, just around the question of who's going to profit from this, how's it going to be commodified um you know I, I know you love a european sportocrat but there might be questions about you know at the end of this if it becomes a profitable enterprise if it becomes a global enterprise are there going to be black and puerto rican people who are staying to benefit from that or is the stuff that they invented and popularized going to be um you know taken over, commodified, profited from by people who are not in that community? Well, in some ways it, it has. I mean, as you mentioned, Vora, this has become a global sport, a global phenomenon. I mean, some of the, the best breakers are from Japan and from Brazil and from Latin American countries and from other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, Korea and Japan and Russia, I mean, has some, uh, beyond Bumblebee has some really great b-boys as well. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, and I would consider those, you know, those people part of the community sure. as well. You know, they've d- devoted like their lives to it. And yeah, you want to make sure that ultimately the people who do it and the people who helped, you know, create it benefit from it. And it's not just, you know, some suits in Switzerland who are doing, who are, who are profiting off of this. Big losers here, squash, snooker and chess who had campaigned to get in. In 2024, Devorah Myers writes for Deadspin. We'll post the link to her story about breaking on our show page. Devorah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. After that breakdancing segment, breaking segment, Josh, I think we should look a little more deeply at the at the moves in breakdancing. Okay. Um, wiki page, breakdance moves. I don't. I kind of like the baby swipe. That's a nice move name. It's also known as the mini swipe. Good for breaking and also for stealing children. Mm-hmm. It's versatile. It is. Uh, top rock, windmill, Wu Tang, flare, float, freeze. There's some good names here, but I kind of like the air flare because it's sort of an unusual word. Nice portmanteau. I think. Is that a single word, air flare? It's written as one word or air hyphen flare. It refers to an acrobatic movement 
in which the performer rotates the torso around the vertical axis of their body, extending from the head down vertically, whilst simultaneously traveling in a circular path along a plane parallel to the floor. You're a whilst guy, not a whilst guy? Whilst. Whilst? Yeah, I'm a whilst guy. I go whilst. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> the feet, clearly you weren't paying attention to the definition of air flare. The feet are not allowed to touch the ground during the execution of this move, and both hands are used to execute standard air flares. I still have no idea what that means. I need to look at a video. Uh, while you're looking at a video, well, maybe you can look at the video while I'm doing my afterball, but why don't you uh, start with yours? What is your air flare, Stefan? I was in England for a few days and saw Tottenham play Leicester City at Wembley, where I'd never been. That was fun. I wound up exiting the stadium via a player's gate. Fancy. where I know. Where I was deposited among a couple hundred mostly Korean fans waiting behind barricades for Spurs star Sun Hung Min to emerge. I asked one of the security guards about the crowd. Every game, she said, devotion. I then asked if Sun, the South Korean national team captain, ever stops to sign autographs. He doesn't sign, she said, comes out on his motorbike and goes. We waited for about a half an hour until another guard announced that Sun had left from the opposite side of the stadium. There was a collective groan and everybody left. That Sun plays in the Premier League owes to the globalization of soccer in the last three decades, that he makes as much money as he does, a reported salary of around $7 million, owes to a legal ruling 55 years ago about which I was totally ignorant until while browsing the football section in a London bookstore, which I like to do when I'm in England, I picked up a copy of The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft. I'd never heard of the book. Hopcraft was a reporter in the 1950s and 60s who covered some football and worked abroad and later wrote television screenplays. The Football Man was published in 1968, just two years after England won its only World Cup. The back cover said it is repeatedly quoted as the best book ever written about football. So I had to buy it. It is a beautifully written portrait of English football on the cusp of the modern era. Era. Among other things, Hopcraft's profile of a young George Best is fantastic, and also of the sport's relationship with the public. What happens on the football field matters not in the way that food matters, but as poetry does to some people and alcohol does to others. It engages the personality, Hopcraft wrote. It has conflict and beauty, and when those two qualities are present together in something offered for public appraisal, they represent much of what I understand to be art. The Football Man is also a window into the history of the game in England, and that's where I encountered the story of George Eastham, the Kurt Flood of English football, but almost a decade earlier. As in baseball, which had the reserve clause, English football exercised complete control over player movement through what was known as the retain and transfer system. Until and unless he was released or transferred, a player was bound to his club year after year. Players called it the slavery contract. They were forced to accept whatever wages the club offered, and those wages were low, lower than what could be earned on factory production lines in post-war England. As in American sports, players had to work in the offseason to make ends meet, and clubs often secured them jobs. George Eastham, a high-scoring forward for Newcastle United, didn't like his offseason job selling glass door-to-door. He also didn't like the housing that the club put him up in, and he didn't like that Newcastle blocked him from playing for England's under-23 team. So after the 1959-60 season, Eastham asked for a transfer to Arsenal. When Newcastle refused, Eastham went on strike. He 
He took a job selling cork in Surrey. I am being branded a bad boy because I want the right of every free man to work where I want without restriction, he told a newspaper. Newcastle finally relented and to get some value for him, sold Eastham to Arsenal. But in the meantime, Eastham and the Players Union, the Professional Footballers Association, sued Newcastle United, the Football League, and the Football Association, arguing that the rules blocking his transfer were a restraint of trade. In 1963, a court ruled for Eastham and the English Football Reserve Clause died. Players gained more protection during negotiations with their teams and the transfer market opened up. Predictably, fans weren't fond of Eastham's labor action. They considered playing football not a job, but a privilege, the working conditions to be accepted without complaint. In his first game against his old team, Newcastle fans pelted Eastham with apples and shouted Judas every time he touched the ball. In 1966, Eastham made the national team, though he didn't play a minute in England's run to the World Cup title. But he may have been responsible for England winning because, as Arthur Hopkins Craft noted in the football man, the Eastham ruling liberated players from, quote, the restrictions binding them so unreasonably and in so much resentment to clubs and low rewards. In other words, play improved when the players were treated more equitably. After Arsenal, Eastham went on to play for Stoke City, which during the English offseason in 1967, excellent U.S. soccer historical tidbit coming up here, played as the Cleveland Stokers of the very short-lived United Soccer Association. It imported all of its teams from Europe and South America. The Stokers finished second in the East to the Washington Whips, who actually were Aberdeen FC of Scotland, who lost to the Los Angeles Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers, 6-5 to five on an own goal in the 122nd minute in front of nearly 18,000 people in the Los Angeles Coliseum. George Eastham was a first-team United Soccer Association all-star. Josh, what's your air flare? When the, quote, dunk shot was banned in college basketball in 1967, the Philadelphia Tribune's Reader's Say column ran a letter with the headline, Maybe a tribe of evil dwarfs is behind ban the dunk cry. That is both rude and inaccurate. The people behind the ban were a 20-member group, the National Basketball Rules Committee, who said it was enacted to equalize the defense and offense and play around the basket because the dunking maneuver does not give the defense an opportunity to block the shot. Unfair. Not fair. Uh, And also because dunking leads to injuries and, quote, damage to the goals. Although they didn't mention the star player who just led his team to a national title, UCLA coach John Wooden said, I think it might have been aimed at Alcinder, meaning the seven-foot-plus dunk-happy Lou Alcinder, who'd later change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But the dunk man wasn't just a college thing. The rules committee had representatives from and purview over all amateur basketball in the United States and Canada, including high school and junior college and YMCA ball. And it seems like the damage to goals thing was, in fact, a real issue. I went searching on newspapers.com and found a whole bunch of stories about rim damage. 225-pound Lynn Stewart was kind of fat-shamed in this story. 225 pounds. They were uh, very uh, quick to to note his weight. He uh, went to La Crosse State, Wisconsin. He bent the rim dunking during warm-ups in 1959, delaying the start of uh, a game by several minutes. In 1964, the News Herald in Willoughby, Ohio, 
said that a high school player who was, quote, unnamed for the sake of embarrassment bent the rim while trying to dunk, leading to a long delay. Look, if I ever bend the rim while dunking, I grant permission to anyone to to name me. I will I will take the shame in stride. Bill Robinson of Merritt College caused a 17-minute delay in 1965, while a pair of players for Pearl High School, James Douglas and Perry Wallace, the latter of which was the first black player to receive a basketball scholarship in the Southeastern Conference, bent the rim in Vanderbilt's gym in 1966 while trying to dunk a rebound. Douglas said it was the second rim he'd bent, and the Nashville, Tennessean newspaper said the rim crunched like a bottle cap between his huge hands, which leads one to wonder uh, if bottle caps were easier to crush back then, because uh, crunching a bottle cap between hands is not a very easy thing to do. Stefan is bend Stephan, the bottle cap in half. Stefan is uh, is demonstrating. Uh, Ten years later, on March twenty seventh, nineteen seventy six, a columnist named Jimmy Davey at that same paper, the Nashville Tennessean, would write that Michigan's Joel Thompson quote set back the return of the dunk in collegiate basketball at least fifteen years after he dunked during a Final Four practice and turned the rim into a pretzel, much like the huge ones sold in the outer lobbies. Four days after Jimmy Davey predicted the dunk wouldn't be back for 15 years, the National Basketball Rules Committee ended the ban on dunking. Not a good prediction. Uh, During the 10-year dunk interregnum, jamming was allowed during warm-ups. The new rule was a switcheroo. Uh, Dunking is allowed during games and banned in pregame, with the chairman of the Rules Committee explaining that rims were more often damaged before games started. Two years later, breakaway rims, which bend and spring back, were introduced at the Final Four for the first time, making the bent rim a relic. But it wasn't until 2015 that the 1976 rule prohibiting dunking and warmups was rescinded, which is why Zion Williamson did not get a technical foul for dunking before the UNC Duke game last week. If he had gotten a technical, that really might have ruined his night. I just did a little research here. And this, of course, made sense. You're right, because the rims were fixed to the backboard. The breakaway rim was not invented until the mid-1970s. Guy that gets credit for it, Arthur Erot. You did research, meaning look at, you're looking at the Wikipedia I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry, entry that yes. I was looking at yesterday, too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he used a spring from a John Deere cultivator. I don't know what a cultivator is. <laughs> But some farm implement created the, the breakaway rim. Yes. Yes, city boy. Yeah. He did. Uh, that is our show for today. Our show has been manufactured from uh, parts from various John Deere tractors. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Type remember Zelmo Beatty in to the search bar at Basketball Reference. And also, thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.